get into the Word. Today is October 12th, uh, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is called Value of Descent. If you have a bulletin, I put a scripture in it for you and uh, a notes field because I'm going to give you some Jewish history today that uh, you probably have never heard and might never hear again. Uh, to give you an idea what started me down this topic, and this descent is D-I-S-S-E-N-T. It's not as in uh, falling out of an airplane, but as in a voice of opposition, if you will. There can be value in having a voice that opposes your own. And what led me down this line was I was watching a presidential debate with some interest because this is an interesting point in our nation's history. And regardless of what you think about each of the candidates or your own particular views, uh, I flipped between two news channels, and I could not believe the difference in coverage. On one news channel, uh, Barack Obama was um, uh, the clear winner of a debate by better than 54 to whatever margin and uh, being described in glowing terms. On the other news channel, uh, John McCain was the clear winner of the debate by an 87 to 12 margin and being described in glowing terms. And I wondered how people could be viewing the same event and come to such dramatically different conclusions. And then I looked at the slogan of one of the news stations and it said, fair and balanced. I thought, yeah, that's very strange. And I'm not picking on that news station. It happens to be the one that I watch the most. Very strange that you would have to say that a news station is fair and balanced. Isn't news supposed to just be the truth and nothing but the truth? And yet it, it's, it's not, is it? And everybody kind of knows that. Some say one leans this way. The other says, no, they lay down that way. It's more than lean. Having said that, what became clear to me uh, is the only way you could have a truthful poll that 87% of the people said this candidate won, then on another nation, 54% said no, this one won, is if what we have done in our news watching is very similar with what we do with other things, and we gravitated towards those who represent our views. See, no longer objective news, no longer just the truth and leave it up to you to decide, but those who seem to present the truth from a standpoint that is agreeable to us. This is the only possible answer for having people watch the same event and come to two radically different conclusions in mass, is that those two news stations have very divided audiences. Now, that probably doesn't come as a shock to you. If you've ever looked into the history of Buddhism, you find something interesting. And we'll apply it to Buddhism than Christianity. Uh, Buddha's name was not Buddha. Uh, it was Siddhartha. And uh, he was not uh, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese. He was Indian. He looked like an Indian man. But as his teachings caught on in the Orient, people began to form and fashion images of him. And when people put a form and fashion of an image of something that they revered, guess what they did? They began to make it in their own image. Isn't that interesting? That Buddha could be a, uh, an Indian man who had ties to uh, the Brahmas, and as he's presenting a philosophy of life, and he moves into the Orient, suddenly people, when they describe him, begin describing him in terms that look like them. Oh, those bad Buddhists, right? Except when you look into the history of Christianity, Jesus was a Jewish man, 
And today, if you look at church art, particularly medieval church art, what you see is the most Caucasian, Viking-looking Jesus that the world has ever known. Blonde hair, blue eyes, at least six foot tall. Uh, certainly could not have any defects in his shape, right? I mean, it's got to be an action figure Jesus. <laughs> And if not an action figure, figure Jesus in an effort to show him very spiritual, almost a fishing lure Jesus. I mean, something that doesn't resemble a human being uh, in the strangest poses the world's ever known. We have a propensity to gravitate towards things that look and act like us. Because inherently, we don't like what the Bible teaches about iron sharpening iron. We don't like to have people around us that look at us and say, you know, that's just not right because there's a feeling that comes with that. Have you ever said something like, that is A and B, and you're pretty sure about it. And then somebody you love and respect looks you right now and says, are you kidding me? It's obviously C. What happens? There's this... uh there's this almost nauseous feeling rises up in your stomach. Sometimes if you're in front of a big crowd, you break out in a little bit of a sweat, your palms tense, and all of a sudden, you feel very assaulted. You ever feel like you got a public correction? Stick around. <laughs> I'm kidding. Not really. A little bit. Something happens, and we avoid that feeling at all costs. So what we do is we gravitate towards groups where we can all just Get along. And that sounds good on the surface, right? It'd be the absence of war. It'd be the absence of any real doctrinal fights or any other kind of things. Because, gosh darn it, let's all just get along. How do you learn if you are never being confronted with something you didn't know? Friends, sometimes you cannot just be wrong. You can just be uninformed about a subject. I mean, a great deal of the learning that occurs in me on a daily basis is not so much that what I knew before was just wrong. It was incomplete, and incomplete to the point where it looks wrong. To be healthy, to be active in the Christian faith, we need to be changing and growing on a regular basis. So turn with me to Kings 22. I want to read to you just a few verses. This, uh, this story contains what people call a Bible difficulty because when they got together and they formed their little groupings of 14 points of this and 12 points of that and, you know, we are uh, pre, we're mid, we're post, we're dispensational, we're amillennial, we're preterist, we're... Sounds like you're describing serial types, doesn't it? When they got into all of their groupings, and they as all of us, there's a box that we begin to create to fit God neatly into. This is our understanding of God. This is what He will do. This is what He won't do. This is the height of Him. This is the depth of Him. This is the width of Him. And we begin to confine God in our thoughts. And part of that is comforting. Because if you have a good handle on God, then you feel like you have a good handle on life. And then something happens where God seems to have moved outside the box and you don't understand. Uh, how many people do you know very strong in the faith until the death of a loved one? Very strong in the faith until the child is harmed in some way. Very strong in the faith until, gosh darn it, something bad happened to them. This is all the product of having put God in a very nice, neat, tidy box in our own lives. 
Well, this chapter, and I probably won't get into it, contains God sending forth what seems to be an angel with a message that is not true. What do we call a statement that's not true? And Thessalonians follows up on this concept and says people are going to perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so God sent them a delusion. God will give you what you want. And if you want truth, He will give you pure, pristine truth. If you are bent on hearing only what your ears want to hear, He will make sure that you drowned in it. I can promise you that. This is not our topic. Our topic comes earlier in the chapter. I just wanted to acknowledge that it was there so nobody felt as if Pastor was soft-pedaling it or trying to get around it. I'll discuss it all day with you. I've preached on it about six times, and I'll give you those messages. But in uh, Kings 22, we'll start with our message. For three years there was no war between Amram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, because this gets awkward. Uh, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. Jehoshaphat is a fairly godly man who served the Lord with his whole heart. The king of Israel goes nameless for most of this chapter. And uh, that's because the writer is probably having to write it with some disgust. Have you noticed that when you're a political leader, you like to say his name if he's in office? If you don't, you simply refer to them by the office? Yeah. I remember there was a whole long eight-year period where people simply said the president, you know? See, I'll leave it up to you to decide what eight years. Isn't that good of me? Okay. So, the writer says, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, goes to meet with <clears throat> the king of Israel. What direction did it say that he went? Down. Says he goes down to meet with the king of Israel. This is very strange since the king of Israel is actually north of the king of Judah. Judah is south of Israel on the map, so you, in our thinking, would have to go up to. Except in the Jewish mindset, Jerusalem is the highest place on the planet, the closest to God, and the spiritual center of the world. So Jehoshaphat is having to descend from Judah, having to go down to get to Israel. The king in Israel is Ahab. He's married to a woman named Jezebel. Meets a very unsightly end. The king of Israel, a.k.a. Ahab, had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? He says, Hey, man, all this is supposed to belong to us. After all, aren't we brothers? I mean, you and I know there's this whole little civil war thing that happened, but you're Judah, I'm Israel. Shouldn't we go retake this land? So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. Uh, you could read into the King Eric translation, hey Ahab, I'm willing as long as it's God's will. Okay, I, I don't have a problem with the plan that you've laid out, but let's first seek the counsel of God. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men. Uh, if you're going to hear from God and you believe that one prophet could hear from God, why would you need 399? There's a real clue here as to something is wrong. Have you ever espoused something and then felt uncomfortable that it might not be right? So you sought to build consensus. 
See, consensus gives us the idea that we must be right because so many people agree. Incidentally, this was one of the bigger stumbling to me in my Christian faith period. Because I began to read through the New Testament and I started to put question marks every time I saw something that did not quite seem to congeal with what I was seeing in church. For instance, the church that I did not believe in the laying on of hands for sick people. They did not believe in any of the gifts still moving. They said that they died a long time ago. Uh, Lots of things like this. So when I got to something in the Word that said, if somebody is sick, bring them before the elders, pray the prayer of faith, and the sick man will get well, I put a big question mark. I said, how could this be true, and yet what I'm practicing every day? Now, you would think the choice would be very clear, right? We're Protestants. Sola Scriptura, the Word and the Word alone. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we would normally think? And yet I was overcome with the thought, there's 900 people in here. They all seem to think that this is okay. Who am I? And it began to work on me. And I got concerned. I'm just a kid. Who am I? I'm reading the Word and I know I see all these inconsistencies, but they can't all be wrong. And after all, that that denomination owns all the Christian bookstores. And they have the most famous teachers on TV. And they all have doctor in front of the name and PhD after their name. The only thing they don't have is a little G-O-D in their name. But they're all spelled with big eyes and little U's. And I uh, didn't know what to do. This kind of pressure. So Jehoshaphat and uh, Ahab are standing by, and Ahab calls 400 prophets. So the king of Israel brought together about 400 prophets and asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Now what do we know Ahab already wants to do? He wants to go to war. That's why they're here. So what do you think he wants to hear from them? And the hireling will always tell you what you want to hear. Why do you think he picked these 400 prophets? Do you think maybe he's feeding them? Do you think maybe they hold royal positions in his cabinet? We need to be careful with people that we pay to tell us what we want to hear. How valuable is that opinion? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. But Jehoshaphat asked. Jehoshaphat's feeling a little uncomfortable with this. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Does that mean that the other 300 or 400 prophets were not prophets of the Lord? Well, it doesn't say they were prophets of Baal or Astra. It doesn't say that they were pagan prophets. It's probably likely that they claimed to be prophets of the Lord, but Jehoshaphat was uncomfortable with what they were saying and doing. All you have to do, friends, is turn on the television and look around and you can see people that claim to be prophets of God. And if it doesn't make you a little uncomfortable what many are doing, something's wrong. You might need to dig into your word a little more. Because there are churches that are entirely fixated upon angels' feathers appearing in the church, even though angels are never mentioned as having feathers or wings in the Bible. There are people that are scraping up gold dust off of the floor, even though God values a life more than gold dust. I'm not picking on any of these practices. I'm just telling you there is weirdness that abounds. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I hate him 
because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. They get dressed in their nicest clothes, and Micaiah comes, and he's standing before the king. And the king says, hey, do we go to war or not? He says, sure, go win. He says, how many times must I tell you to tell me the truth? He goes, okay, you're going to die. And uh, if you go, all the people are going to be scattered, and uh, it's going to be horrible for you. He goes, see, I hate him. He never says anything good. <laughs> McKay was full of sarcasm when he tells him, sure, go. It's what all your paid prophets said. Why are you calling me? You don't really want to hear the truth. You want to hear something that pleases you. Honestly, saints, have you ever attended church, maybe even for a period of years, just because you wanted to feel a little better about yourself and it seemed to be the right thing to do? Have you ever left the church, left a meeting, or left a friendship behind because somebody told you something that you now know was probably good for you, but you didn't like it at the time? See, we have a tendency to cling to those who affirm us and run from those who correct us. But the 12th chapter of Proverbs couldn't be any clearer. It says, if you hate correction, you are a F-double-O-L fool. And that's not me. God said that. Now, here's what's sad is I've played the fool many times. I've walked away from a meeting realizing I acted just like a fool because I hated that and they were probably right. This is human nature. And I'm not suggesting that it's not. What I'm suggesting is like the title suggests, We ought to look at dissenting opinions from our own with a certain level of appreciation. Uh, Back to our presidential politics. But this time we're going to go back centuries so that nobody is upset uh, because that happens when you talk present politics. Do you know that before the 12th Amendment was passed in 1804, nobody ever voted for a president and vice president on the same ticket together? The way that our country was founded by the Founding Fathers, actually before the 12th Amendment, what you did is you voted for your man for president. And uh, whoever was the runner-up became vice president. This way you had leadership of opposing points of view with a majority consensus. This is the guy we want most in charge. This is the guy we want second most in charge. The Jewish system has been like this for many years. In fact, the reason that I brought this whole thing up was to be able to get to something. If you have a notes field, you want to write this word down. It's called Zugot. Z-U-G-O-T. Would it make a difference to you if Jesus was Hispanic? How about Norwegian? What if Jesus grew up in a place where they did that neat little game with the broom uh, for the Olympics? Yeah, I don't even know what it's called. Would that make any difference? What if Jesus grew up in an igloo? Does that make a difference in the gospel? Well, how about something like a man who builds his house on the sand versus a man who builds his house on the rock? What if you've never seen sand because you're raised in Antarctica? Does that scripture change at that point? If Jesus was raised in Antarctica, can he even make a statement like that? See, I'm suggesting that Jesus' cultural background has something to do with his teaching. God put him into what the academic world calls a milieu, meaning a rich, vibrant environment designed by God to convey a message. 
This means that Jesus' surroundings had an influence on his teaching. You don't describe a house on rock versus a house on sand if you've never seen those two things. You don't describe a sower who goes out to sow seed if you live in a frozen tundra where nobody has ever thrown a seed. Jesus picked teaching from his present-day life, and he drew on the rich sources of environment around him. Can you all agree with that? If you can't, shake your head big no. Good. Good. See, you're learning to value a dissenting opinion. Zugit, uh, Wikipedia de- defines as couples. <laughs> I can't tell you how offensive that must be to a Jewish person who reads that. The Zugit are not couples. When you think of a couple, what do you think of? You think of Judah and his little girlfriend going to a dance, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Judah. Couples are usually uh, male and female pairs of something, right? Now, this is not couples. The right way to translate this is pairs. And in the time period before Jesus came on the scene teaching in Israel, this time period is known in Jewish history as the time of the Zugat. Pairs is what that is. And for five successive generations, God raised up teachers. Teachers for his nation in his uh, country. Often had opposing points of view and they led Israel. He said, well, why would God do that? Is he into disunity? Well, we know he's not into disunity. But the feeling is, looking back upon history with some sense of clarity with the word of God to guide you, that when you have two men who both love the Lord with all of their heart and they feel differently on a subject, you get to see more sides of that subject and Israel has benefited as a whole from it. So I want to tell you about a few of these and I've talked to you about some of them before. Uh, there's going to be five pairs. I'm only going to tell you about four of them. Are you already bored out of your mind? You ready to leave, go to sleep? Okay. Uh, first one is Yozi Ben Yozer. Don't ask me how to spell these things. It's phonetic. You can spell it however you like. It comes from a different language. You know, I'll draw a Hebrew symbol and you can tell me what English letter you think goes with it. Because the Yosi, sometimes it's J-O-S-E, sometimes it's Y-O-S-E, sometimes it's Y-O-S-I, sometimes it's Y-O-U-S-I. I, you got me. You write it how it sounds to you. Yosi Ben Yozer. Now, when you hear these names, it's assumed, although it was never said, whoever's name was first was kind of the one with the 51% authority and the other's kind of the one with the 49% authority. So the first one is Yosi Ben Yozer and he's paired off with Yosi Ben Yohanan. Let me tell you what some of these names mean. Yosi is... Yosi, son of Yozer. Uh, Yosi ben Yonan is Yosi, son of John. These guys occupy a time period around 155 B.C. This means that 155 years before Jesus, there were men teaching in pairs that formed what all of Israel thought doctrinally, what all of Israel considered and discussed on a daily basis. Now, by the way, have you ever thought, you can't tell me what to think? Sure, Brent, you've definitely thought that, hadn't you? Yeah, we like that distinctiveness. And that may be true. I was with Michael Frown in Israel. And he was Benjamin Netanyahu's press secretary. And he told me a story, me and about four other guys. And look, he's a politician. He can keep you rolling all day. But he said, you just think y'all have problems with slanting in your media. And I said, oh, we definitely do. And he referred to somebody at the Communist News Network in our uh, country. That was his perspective, not mine. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean? And I didn't realize he was setting me up 
he had a perfect story for this. He said, when Benjamin Netanyahu was uh, prime minister in Israel, I was distressed at the liberal press, and they never seemed to give Netanyahu a, a, a break. So we went out to the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Benjamin took off his shoes, and he walked upon the Sea of Galilee. And I waited the next morning to see exactly what the newspapers would report. And much to my dismay, the headline said, Benjamin Netanyahu is unable to swim. It's true that nobody can tell you what to think. But they certainly can tell you what to think about. Do you know what I mean? What I'm trying to say is, I may not be able to form your opinion, but simply by interjecting something into a conversation, we've brought you into a realm where you were thinking about certain things. So if you watch the news all day long, you are going to think about death. You're going to think about cases. You're going to think right now about economic doom and gloom. You may not be thinking like they're reporting, but you are going to think about it because it's all that you're being barraged with. Having said that, when you examine these, this time period of the Zuget and the two pairs, I'm not suggesting that Jesus or anybody else in Israel agreed with them. Not any of the time, not 100% of the time, although a reasonable person would say certainly they agreed with some of it. What I'm suggesting is that they dominated what Israel talked about. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Because if it doesn't, I'm going to cry and go home, and then how awkward will that be for you? Pretty awkward. So, Yosef ben Yosef, let me tell you a little bit about him. He said, open your house for the gathering of the wise and cover yourself in their dust. In other words, Yosef ben Yosef thought that it was a good thing and one of the axioms that he lived by was everybody should have their house open and whoever you can gather in there that's wise, you should want to imitate them to the point that when they walk and dust kicks up, covered in their dust. It's kind of exciting, huh? Anybody in here disagree with the fact that that's wise? Probably not. Is that a complete statement about God? Is that the... End all, be all way to get directly to God. So his opposing teacher, man who they're friends with at times and antagonistic at other times, says, no, your house should be open for the needy and don't converse too long with women. Anybody find something good and something not so good in that statement? I won't ask you what. <laughs> they both had opposing points of view about what your house should be used for. One says it's best to fill it with the needy. The other says it's best to fill it with the wise. You ever have a disagreement with somebody and you appeal to God and you say, God, am I right or is Darren right? Of course, he says Darren. But if it was somebody other than Darren, like let's say Casey, and he said, God, what about this with Casey? What, what do you think? And you get the impression God's going, yep. It's not always a clear matter of right and wrong. What if it is just that I didn't know? what Casey was saying. Do you think that there's room to fill your house with both the needy and the wise? Of course. But in hearing these two men debate this, in dominating the conversation in Israel, you know what's being discussed in their homes? Which is better, to serve the needy or to be among the wise? And that conversation moved Israel more towards holiness. Next pair. Joshua ben Perakiah, or another way to say that is Joshua ben Perach. P-E-R-A-C-H-A-Y-A. This is about 104 B.C. Joshua and his buddy Mattiah of Arbala. Arbala is a town up by uh, northern Israel near the Galilee. Uh, Joshua says, Get thee a teacher 
win thee a friend, and in judging incline towards the sides of innocence. So Joshua is a fan of having a teacher-student relationship that is friendly. And when you judge, he wants to lean towards the side of mercy. Isn't this a good thing? Of course it is. His opposing teacher says, Withdraw thyself from your evil neighbors, join not thyself to the wicked, and renounce not the hope of retribution. Was well, it a good thing to withdraw from evil? On one level, certainly it is. You want to be holy. How about uh, not joining yourself or adhering yourself to the wicked? Is that good? Of course it is. Renounce not the hope of retribution. Well, doesn't that depend upon the circumstances? Let's suppose that you are in a death camp and Hitler is uh, killing you. Uh, might it be a motivating factor not just to say, Lord, we sure hope Hitler gets saved. But to say, Lord, I know there's going to be a day where you'll judge the righteous and the wicked. And I pray he gets everything to him. Paul made statements like that. So is it wrong? Probably not. But what you see in these two men is you see one encouraging mercy and the other saying, you cling to the fact that if they don't repent, God will burn them. And is there room in Israel for both? Of course. This is going on a hundred years before Jesus is born. We'll skip the third group, but it's Judah and Simeon. And in the fourth group, we get Shemaiah and Abdalon. Shemaiah is a less political figure, and Abdalon is a very political figure. But let me tell you about their axioms. Shemaiah says, love work, shun power. And uh, do not join yourself to friends with worldly might. So what we see is a man who wants to, I don't know, live quietly, win over outsiders by his godly lifestyle, something like maybe the book of First Peter requires. Look at Abdullah. He says, You wise men, be careful of your words, lest you draw upon yourselves punishment and be banished to a place of bad water and your disciples be forced to drink it. One, not a politician, says, Lead a quiet life and honor God. The other, who is a politician, says, You need to be very careful of your words because the people who follow you will suffer because of them. Is there room for both messages? Who's right? I mean, gosh darn it, don't we want to know who is right? Doesn't somebody have to be right? There are times where there is only one right way, a narrow way. There are other times, it's called living in the gray, where God allows you to lean different ways at different times because He wants different outcomes. I refuse to go into this in great depth, but I just want to lay out a scenario for you. Could you believe that somebody who is persuaded that birth control is sin for them personally because they feel like it works against their trust in God, like they're trying to control their uh, ability to produce children? Is it possible that under any circumstances God could honor that? I'm persuaded to say yes. Is it possible that somebody else would say, no, absolutely. It's like taking Tylenol. When you want to have children, you stop doing that, and you can be led by God to do that. I'm also persuaded that's a reasonable position. If in this church somebody sits on the left side and somebody sits on the right side and they have opposite views, one of the neat things that a pastor gets to do is sit back and go, oh, wow, that must be because they still need to have more kids and they don't. And I've lived long enough to see that now. There are many times in the faith that what we've done is we've created our pet doctor 
We've stood on it as if we understand the integrity of the matter and we have alienated anyone that does not agree with our position we've staked out. There are moments you need to do that. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, the imminent return of Christ, uh, the holiness of Jesus, His demand for holiness in the Bible are all in the in the Bible are all reasons that you need to stake your claim. But let me ask you, is that what most Christians are arguing about? Probably not. Hmm. I want to get to a couple... Oh, by the way, Shmai and Abdullah, one of their biggest discoveries, biggest arguments that they had was over the Paschal Lamb. And they wanted to know, could you sacrifice the Passover Lamb if it was on a Sabbath? Because you're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath unless you're a Levite, and then you work your butt off on the Sabbath, right? Not a day of rest for you. Could you sacrifice a Passover lamb if Passover fell on the Sabbath? In other words, if the 14th of Nisan fell on some other holy day in which regular people were not supposed to do work. And they decided that you could, and that becomes very important in the life of Jesus. Study the last week, and you will find out that he was crucified on the Sabbath. But in any case... Uh, moving on to Hillel and Shammah. Do you all recognize those names at all? Hillel and Shammah? These are the teachers that are alive as Jesus is born. They're the two most predominant figures in all of Israel as to the extent that they have formed houses that follow them. Now, what is funny is that these houses form schools of thought. It's, uh, are you a Pharisee or a Sadducee? Uh, the average guy leaned more towards the Pharisee. The Pharisee believed that all the books of the Bible were inspired. He believed in angels and demons and the bodily resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees largely followed a priesthood, uh, derived their power from the temple, and were Hellenistic Roman sympathizers. Most people identified with the Pharisees. But the next question was, of the Pharisees, do you relate to Hillel or do you relate to Shammah? The last pair of two great teachers that agreed on most things but took violent disagreements in other areas. It's interesting to note that in their history, at times they both praised each other and other times said, you destroy the law by your interpretation. One time, they even called each other sons of Satan. (laughs) Threatened to beat each other for teaching wrong things. In other words, they got pretty upset with one another. Shammah is the older man than Hillel, and uh, Hillel was the more prominent man. Hillel died before Shammah, even though he was the younger man, and on the day he died, Shammah said Israel's lost his greatest teacher. They loved each other, but they also hated each other. I was about to make a marriage joke, but I decided I better not. Some of the things that Hillel is most known for, and then I promise we're going to get into the Word. But I tell you what, the Christian church, if it knew just a little bit more about Jewish history, you could appreciate some of the things that are written in your Bibles from a Jewish perspective that we've ignored. Hillel, what is hateful to you... Oh, by the way, this story, uh, a a Gentile comes, and he stands at a distance, and he says, Shama, I've heard you're a great teacher. Uh, Could you sum up the law for me? I mean, just kind of give me the minimum. What do I need to do? And uh, this story got retold in in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. It was said that the man asked Shama to do it while he was standing on one foot. In other words, tell me everything you know about God during the time period in which you could balance on one foot. 
Shama became angry. He's the more passionate of, of the two. You can think of Hillel as patient. You can think of Shama as passionate. So Shama picked up a builder's rod and beat the man until he ran off. Maybe you wouldn't think of that as godly, but he saw it, he's passionate, as what an insult to think that you could describe God while standing on one foot. He said God is bigger than that. So you can kind of relate to that. Maybe you can't. I certainly can't. So the man then runs to Hillel. Obviously, this is probably a mythical story. But in any case, the man runs to Hillel and he says the same thing. I want you to describe for me uh, all of the law while standing on one foot. And Hillel replies, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. This is the whole law. The rest is just explanation. Go and learn it. Have you ever heard anything that sounded similar to that? I don't know, in about the second grade when you learned the golden rule and they didn't tell you who it came from? When Jesus says, love your neighbor or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, all of the law and the prophets hang on these kind of principles? It was not the first time that it had ever been said in his Israel. Now, he changed it. Hillel's was slightly more negative. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Jesus was slightly more positive. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. But see, this conversation in Israel even influenced Jesus' teaching because it's what the people were thinking about. Is it useful to know that kind of thing? How about this one? Say not when I have free time, I will study, for such a time may never come. When teaching his students, he said, don't wait till you have free time to study. Make the time to study. Let me counterpose uh, these with a couple of thoughts. Shama said, make the study of the Torah your chief occupation. Speak little, accomplish much, and receive every man with a friendly countenance. This is good stuff. But Shama's not leaning as much towards mercy as Hillel is. In fact, Shama was so passionate about keeping the law that the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, uh, you had to have a view of the open sky. You had to build what we would call a lean-to over you to commemorate the time period that Israel traveled in the desert. Well, his daughter-in-law was giving birth uh, in, in his house, and uh, there's no open view of the sky. So while the baby was crowning and the Feast of Tabernacles was happening, he got on the roof and dug a hole in the roof so that he could build a lean-to that the baby would be born under so that on the day that it was born, it was keeping the Feast of Sukkot. <laughs> you have to at least admire his zeal, right? <laughs> I say all of this to say about our presidents, about the Zagat, about the king who only wanted to hear good words, that we need to value people in our lives that have the courage to tell us something that maybe we didn't want to hear. This is where learning occurs. It is a very insecure and small position to take to only surround ourselves with people that we know agree with us. And yet that's where the vast majority of us gravitate towards because it's work to be around other people, right? But doesn't the work, doesn't the Bible say work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Maybe we don't have a complete and perfect revelation, each one of us, on God's will for our lives in every area. You think that maybe we might not? And dwelling next to your brother and getting close enough to be able to speak into each other's life might make us a little more well-rounded. Genesis 1.14, I'm going to have you go to Genesis 2, but I'm going to tell you about Genesis 1.14. I have about 19 more minutes, 
I will get you out on time for no particular reason other than I'm hungry and have a fence to build. But in Genesis 1.14, you're going to Genesis 2. I'm going to tell you about Genesis 1.14. It says that God created two great lights. One to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. Why? Why two great lights? And how can you have two that are great? Why can't... I mean, doesn't one have to be right and one wrong? One is the source of illumination. The other is only a recipient and a reflector of it. They don't operate the same way. They don't look the same way. One's bigger, the other's smaller. We're talking about the sun and the moon. But why does God call them both great and both give them the task of governing? It's on the fourth day of creation I'm telling you about. Throughout the Bible, God uses pairs of two. And when he doesn't use pairs of two, it's because he used more than two. And there are reasons for this. Most often people think about this as husbands and wives, and the truth is, most of the time it's not in the Word. The husbands and the wives are a place where it starts, but it's really pairs outside the home. And we'll get there. Two is the number of covenant in the Bible. And to be uh, fiercely individualistic is not only an American trait, it's a human trait. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. But to walk with somebody else in agreement, learning to submit to them and them submit to you out of love, this is a very godly thing to do. You have to die to self to be able to do it. Uh, In Genesis 2, the 24th verse, God says that he is going to... Let's see. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and they will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Uh, Jennifer and I are one flesh according to the Bible, and yet we're standing in two different rooms right now. How could that be possible? So, well, Eric, this is just a metaphor for marital acts. No, it's really not. From the biblical perspective, Jennifer has strengths and weaknesses, and I have strengths and weaknesses, and they don't line up in the same places. Not to say that we have no abilities that complement each other. What we're saying is that God designed us in such a way that her strengths help make up for my weaknesses, and my weaknesses, or my strengths, help make up for her weaknesses. A way an old black and white movie said this is, we fill in each other's gaps, our low spaces. Okay. Uh, there's even some hint that the words bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh allude to this in a Hebraic idiom. Now, this sounds neat on the surface. David's got strengths. In the same place as Jennifer has weaknesses. So together that ought to be a perfect fit, right? A more holistic human being. But if two people are not able to hide self, what you have is an absolute mixture for volatility. You have an excuse for the carnal nature to point out these differences. And when you're carnal, what do you do with differences? Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. It's no longer just an area of strength and just an area of weakness. It is... Big me way up here and little you way down there. How could you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube? I hate people who do that. How many times have you heard that phrase? Guy pulls out in traffic. I hate people who do that. Really? How do we get anywhere? Yeah, because you're all going to have to pull out in traffic at some point, right? The carnal side points to any difference as a reason for us to exclude, to part ways. In the kingdom, we have to grow into maturity to the point where we realize that two is better than one and figure out how to work together. Those of you that have been around Matthew and I for a while know 
we're pretty well polar opposites. You can sit in a room with Matthew for an entire hour and not speak. <laughs> Call Matthew on the phone and say, Hi, Matthew, how are you doing? And it seems as if he takes about 30 minutes to consider his answer before speaking. We've been friends a very long time. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if you want to read a book, probably don't want to sit in the room with Pastor Eric. Because the 30 minutes Matthew's taking to consider his answer, I have already espoused five or six answers that he might could choose from. I can't turn it off. The idle words are the words between the other words. And yet, God has used this many times to our benefit. Matthew is slow to action. Eric is uh, much quicker to react. God uses these things to create a more holistic and balanced approach as long as we're being led by the Spirit and we're submitting to one another out of love. Otherwise, you know what we do? We build a house of Pero and a house of Stevens and they war with one another. And truthfully... The body can still be benefited, but what you have is followers of each, and we are forbidden to do that. In the second chapter of Corinthians, Paul said, some of you say you follow Apollos, other Cephas. Were either of them crucified for you? I thank God I didn't baptize anybody except the house of Christophus, who I remember I baptized. A whole long teaching on it. He would not allow them to break down into followers of men. Instead, they were supposed to look at the differences among them, glorify God for all of them. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. You've got 15 more minutes that you can absorb something good. Then we'll go eat, which is also absorbing something good. Then if you choose to, we can go work on a fence and you can sweat it all off. Where's Ecclesiastes? It's hidden. I got it. All right. So you'll be in the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes. Tell me when you're there. Y'all are quiet today. Very quiet. We're still considering making our sign. We're trying to decide just how politically offensive it is. Before entering, Caucasians pray for emotion. Well, it's got two laughs, so I guess we'll wait. We'll build a consensus and then build the sign. Are you ready for the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes? What we're going to do is we're going to start in the ninth verse. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. When you're building something like, I don't know, a fence, would you rather be alone? Would you rather be alone or have somebody working with you? It's easier when somebody's working with you. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. Tell me, that's fine as long as we're in a nursing home and we're doing gate training. We all understand that. If grandma falls, help. You remember the commercials? I fall in and I can't get up. We understand it from that level, but how about your spiritual life? Who is close enough to you in your spiritual life to say you're slipping in this area and I want to help you up? And then what does that help look like? Does it look like this? Oh, sweet person. You always do everything right. And I just love you, and this is so good. I want to tell you how you can do it, not just right, but even better than right. And let me give you some uh, candied apples or something. Is that what it looks like when you fall and you need help? How many times have you fallen and you don't quite realize it until it's shoved in your face? Well, let me submit to you an idea. 
Not very many times when you watch those television shows, because I know you've never been in this position, is there somebody inebriated that knows they're inebriated? Police officer says, uh, been drinking a little bit tonight? <coughs> no. Well, you're driving down the wrong side of the road at the wrong speed, and somewhere you lost your clothes. Oh, oh, don't know how that happened. Not drunk. Christian walks the same way. People slip into areas that are unhealthy for them, and they often don't know it because, I know this would be a real shock to you, the devil is a deceiver. And why was the serpent picked to be his mouthpiece in the book of Genesis? He was more subtle, the King James said. Subtle means that it doesn't come on you all at once. It's a little bit like slowly turning off the lights until you're standing in a dark room and it doesn't seem strange. Have you never woke up, been standing in a place and gone, how did I get this far from where I wanted to be? How good would it have been if there was somebody that was close enough to you along the way that said, hey, quit acting like an idiot! But that would hurt my feelings. I'd much rather have my feelings hurt than go into hell. Didn't Jesus say something about that? That's right, I think He did, about your eyes. Hmm. We need to learn to value people who will stand next to us. And I'm not talking about a person who stands behind a pulpit. I'm talking about developing spiritual relationships with each other that are not police-like. What have you been doing today? You know, I'm your accountability partner and I'm going to check off my list. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who loves you and cares and says, I'm not sure that that direction you're going in is the most healthy. Let's pray together. You know? When we develop these kind of relationships, there's benefit in it. He says, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Have you never faced some difficult, cold spiritual circumstance and it was better just to have somebody to pray and walk with? Of course. I've been through something I didn't think I could have got through otherwise. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Now, there's a real natural setting to this. You whip me all day long, but if Nick's standing with me, no chance, right? How about spiritually? Who is close enough to you that y'all stand and y'all can literally fight the same spiritual battle on each other's behalf? Who knows you intimately enough to know by looking at you? There's a struggle in this area and I'm going to lock arms with you and pray. Who is it that you can be honest with and not be ashamed to have to speak? Well, I can, Eric. Of course I'm ashamed. Well, there's a certain amount of shame that should come with sinful behavior. But who do you share your life with? So what I do with my spouse, that is good. You know what's better than that? Also find another peer. Because your spouse is going to love you whether you are uh, bad or good. But you do need a peer. And if you're single, great. The only one you got is a peer. This is a much more healthy relationship. At the end of the day, Jennifer and I are going to follow the same path. We really are. But David and I don't have to. So what this means is that as good as Jennifer's advice is in my life, the addition of David's is even a better thing. I don't have any methods to persuade David like I do, Jennifer. Speaking of cooking. It's good... It's good that we develop this and it results in a well-rounded human being. It's also why the devil tries to isolate us. You find me a demoniac in the Bible and I will find you somebody who is uh, demonized because they are alone. 
You understand it's when we're alone that we have trouble defending ourselves. When we stand with someone else, two will chase 10,000. One, 1,000, two, 10,000. Do you see the difference in exponents? We are exponentially stronger when we stand with our brothers and sisters. It's why Psalm 133 says how good it is when brothers dwell in unity. Uh, turn with me to Mark 8. i got just a couple of scriptures that will finish this idea and then you guys can leave two by two. Glad you're there. Where's the rest of you? Y'all talk to me. I get my feelings hurt. In Mark 8, look at verse 7. That is not at all right. Yeah, how about that? Let me look here real fast. Go to Matthew 18. David's there. Where are the rest of you? <laughs> Y'all all in Matthew 18? Yes. I'm not. Hmm. Okay. Let me tell you what I had intended to tell you before Matthew 18, because your pastor can't find this in his Bible at the moment. And what makes it better is it's in three of the four Gospels, so that gives me a three and four shot of finding it, and I still don't have it right. When Jesus sends out uh, the twelve the very first time, he sends them two by two and says, take no money with you, don't take an extra tunic. Basically, they go only with each other. And they come back successful and excited. And they come back successful and excited because the demons submitted to them. They healed the sick. All of these things. But Jesus added something else when he said it. In the Gospel of Mark, when he says it, he says, and if they don't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet. In the Gospel of John, he says this also to the two brothers, James and John, about leaving a town where they were not received. Uh, That came from Rabbi Yozer. Dust off your feet. Uh, Having said that, I wanted to point out before we get to Matthew 18 that over and over and over they were sent out in pairs of two. And it does not say one cast out a demon. It says they did. It's only later in the book of Acts when Luke is emphasizing certain personalities for a given reason that we start to see Peter did this or Paul did this. Prior to that, it was Peter and John, Paul and Silas. It was always a they. Why might God be safer in acting with two people rather than one? There's less chance one guy's going to be lifted up like an idol. Do you know he had to hide Moses' body so that the people didn't worship it? God began to work in a group because his glory could be spread out without one man being lifted up. So in Matthew 18, I want to talk to you about an application of this. If your brother sins at 18:15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won over your brother. If he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If one guy's talking to you, why would that not be enough? Because he might be wrong. But when two people are talking to you and they both agree, it carries more weight, doesn't it? How about three? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Boy, you never see that done. Unless you go to church here, then every once in a while you get to see it. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is a ridiculous fabrication of this verse to make these keys to heaven and hell held by one man who is a pope. Instead, what he is saying is binding and loosing have to do with permitting uh, and not permitting. And he's saying that if you get together in groups of two or three on the earth and you agree by way of the Spirit, you agree, it's as if God were standing there and he did it. Heaven will back you up. You know why this was so important to these young Jewish men when they're thinking that they're going to go out and represent this new teaching to the rest of the world? They needed to know where their source of authority was. And Jewish authority came from something called Shmiha, three teachers that agreed that what you were teaching was right. And what Jesus is saying is, I will back you up and I will give you the authority as long as there's at least two that agree in the matter. The idea is that one might be strong in one area and the other weak in a corresponding area, but together they would be able to come to grips with what was God's mind in the matter. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Is Jesus only with you in a group of two or three, or is he also with you alone in your car? Because at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28 says, Lo, I am with you and even to the end of the age. In Deuteronomy 31, he also said that he would never leave them or forsake them. So what does he mean when he says, I am there with you? It means that when two of us are walking together in the parish that God has put us in, or three, or how many ever, and we come to a spiritual consensus it's as good as Jesus being there and speaking the word. Why, friends, would we not want that? Why would we want to be an island ourselves? How many times have you had crazy, erratic thoughts? How many times have you been sure you were right? I'm so right about this, I just can't wait till it comes out. Only to embarrassingly find out you weren't as right as you thought. This always happens with my wife and I, honestly. I was sure, sure that I was sure, and then I walk in and the keys are right where she said they were. She tricked me. She moved them. In fact, in my home, Jennifer's the finder of all lost objects. That's a weakness in my area. That's a strength in hers. And we are better together. Otherwise, I'd never get to meet with you. I would never know where my keys were. Um... Two working through differences and coming to a consensus is a way for God to work in our midst. Proverbs 18.17 says, He who presents an argument seems right until another comes forward and questions him. How many times have you heard the first half of the story and you were sure? And then you heard somebody else tell it and all of a sudden you were filled with doubt. This is why important matters in our life require us to work with other people. 
It's why there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Last two scriptures. Corinthians 11.19 says, It's good that differences arise among you, that God may show who has His approval. We need to learn to value the differences between us as an opportunity to see where God was at work rather than get mad at anyone who does not agree with us and form our own little kingdoms and camps. By the way, if you're keeping a list of people who have wronged you at some point in your life or have stood against you in some area, no matter how big or small, you are guaranteed to die alone because there will never be Anyone who loves you who does not make it onto that list. In fact, open rebuke is better than hidden love. So you want to look for people in your life that love you enough to tell you when they disagree with you rather than cower and watch you crash. Hmm? Ephesians 5. We're going to turn there. That would be the last scripture I have you turn to. It would be Ephesians 5. Everybody quotes further down than this, and I don't think people realize what it says above it. Ephesians 5. You see that heading above 22? It says wives and husbands. You all see that? Do you see that? Yes. Okay. And everybody knows that that says wives submit to husbands under it, right? What's above it? What's above it? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The same command that's given to husbands and wives is given to all human beings with each other out of to Christ. This means that Fred and I can value the fact that we have a difference of an opinion in an area, and yet, for the sake of getting God's will done, we need to submit to each other out of our respect to Christ. Well, what does that mean? What we want is we want bylaws that say, in this scenario, this person is always right. It doesn't work that way. It means that we both have to sit and listen appreciate that two people who love Jesus can view something slightly differently and ask God, what is it that you would like to see come out of this? And in the end, it's better than Fred could have done alone or Eric could have done alone. And what you have is God moving in the midst of two people. Everybody's given the same command that husbands and wives are. A man walked up to me yesterday while I was building the fence. I took a piece of concrete out of the ground and I threw it into the ditch behind me. The ditch is about 40 feet deep, and uh, the concrete sank into the mud like a rock never seen again. man walked up, and he said, I am probably going to regret saying this. I've never seen this guy before. What kind of way is that to start a conversation? He said, I am probably going to regret saying this, but are you going to throw anything else in the ditch? Stunned, I paused. He said, because you're going to flood our houses. If you put things into the ditch, that is flood control, and it will flood our houses. What's racing through my mind right now is not the absurdity of the little piece of concrete that I put in there. It's the way that he opened the conversation. I'm probably going to regret saying this. So they come and say, no, sir, you won't regret saying that. I'm very sorry. I didn't think that all the way through. And uh, if it's possible, I'll go get that out. He was so stunned he didn't know what to say. He just turned around and walked off embarrassed in front of his wife. We have been trained that it is offensive to even suggest to somebody that they may not be 100% right in some area. I'm suggesting that it is nothing less than a lack of love that would allow us to do that. If we love each other, we, not, we don't want to be a policeman in each other's life, but what we do is we want to encourage each other on towards godliness. And even if somebody is wrong, 
if their motivation is love, can't you respect them for it? I can't tell you the number of corrections I've received in my life that were right. But there's also a large number that were not. But if the motivation was love, then we're all blessed by it, and it's an expression of love. Last scripture is Hebrews 13, 17. You don't have to turn there. I just want to point that it says, Submit to your leaders so that their work will be a joy. There's nothing that is more disheartening to a pastor than to be motivated by love and try to impart something good into someone's life and they act as if you're publicly insulting them and slapping them in some way. Um, Most of the time, your spiritual leaders don't get anything out of uh, correcting you. Nobody's ever given me a big plaque. I don't have an award. I don't think I've ever received a gift certificate for telling somebody something they didn't want to hear. And given that, my only motivation must be that I love you and I want you to do well. This is the standard in our church that we're hoping for. I am definitely going to get it wrong. How about that? You are definitely going to get it wrong, but we're going to strive to try to get it right. And in the end, God will be able to move more in our midst, in our community, than He would with us as individuals because our strengths and weaknesses will help balance each other out.